Well, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Grab your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 15 if you're not there already. And we are closing in on the, the last verses of the chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. One of the most amazing principles in our faith is the already but not yet principle, where so many things have begun, but these things have only just begun. And I won't give you a, a Karen Carpenter impression this morning by singing that line, but things have only just begun. And we see that in verse 49. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 49. It says, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. There's a future realization, a future actualization for the Christian that there will be a heavenly image borne by us. And yet we know that God has already begun a work in us, hasn't He? God has already started. But it is not yet what it will be. And Paul has been speaking this way to the Corinthians all throughout the letter. It seems as though they had a problem of thinking they had arrived. They had grasp on to the already aspect of the Christian life, and yet the not yet part had slipped through their fingers. And I want to read to you a, a quote here from the top from Gordon Fee, where he sums this up. He says, the framework is the same throughout the, throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians. Eschatology that is both already and not yet. Through Christ, the end has begun, but they are not there yet, as many of them seem to think. So they must live in hope, not in a false triumphalism that leads to aberrant behavior. The Corinthians were not to think as though they had arrived, to have a sense of victory that was not yet actualized. They were to live in hope of what was to come. And I want us to look at verse 50. You look down at your text, verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15. And I want us to just marinate on this verse for a while. Paul says, now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Wow, what an amazing, amazing statement. As we make our way toward our final destination as Christians, there's a major change that must take place in our lives. There's a ma major change that must take place to our bodies, to who we are. We're already saved, but we are not yet fit for the kingdom of God physically, are we? <laughs> we're fit spiritually, but we're not yet fit physically. A major change has to take place. Even though we've already been born of imperishable seed, on our way toward an imperishable inheritance, we have to be given an imperishable body. And one of the places that you can see this most clearly even outside of 1 Corinthians 15 is in 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, he says, You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. Notice he's speaking in past tense. You have been born again of seed that is imperishable. The Word of God, through the Word of God, you've been born again imperishably through this Word. And what are we headed toward? Well, this is earlier in the chapter, 1 Peter 4. 
He says we're headed to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So we've been born again through imperishable seed and we're headed toward an imperishable inheritance. And eventually this culminates in the kingdom of God on earth. This is what you read about in the last chapters of Revelation. All things being made new, a physical, explicitly physical restoration of all things on the earth. And entrance into that kingdom, entrance into this new physical kingdom requires for us a total restoration, being given a new physical body. Not just a spiritual restoration, but even a physical restoration. Some people like to really focus on the divide between our physical existence and our spiritual existence. And there certainly is a difference. You don't want to blur those lines too much. There is a difference. Every person here is both material and immaterial. We can only see the material, but each one of you has a soul. Each one of you is a spiritual being. Each one of you will exist forever somewhere. However, we don't want to separate these two ideas so much that we think God is only concerned about one or the other. Because God made both, didn't He? And He put both together in one being. You are both material or physical and immaterial and spiritual. And so there will be one day when God will apply to your being a total and full restoration that won't just encompass your spirit or your soul. That's already begun. You've already been born again spiritually, haven't you? One day, you will be born again physically. You will be transformed. You will be changed. And we see this in our chapter in verse 50 as Paul closes this topic of the Christian resurrection. He makes sure we understand that this change is necessary, not just wishful. He starts off the verse by saying, Now I say this. Now I say Everything preceding is the foundation for what Paul is about to say. It's all been leading up to this big declarative summary, a final statement on what is true about our future. And he points to, first, our current inability. You notice that in verse 50? He doesn't start with something positive, he starts with something negative. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Cannot. Your flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Well, what is flesh and blood? What's wrong with it? (laughs) That's a legitimate question after reading something like that, isn't it? If our flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of God, why is this? Well, Paul is not putting the emphasis on physicality here. He's not saying physical beings cannot enter the kingdom of God. That is not what he's saying. Because your resurrection will be a physical one, won't it? You will have a physical body just as Jesus had a physical body in His resurrection. And so His emphasis isn't on just a physical nature. Instead, His emphasis is on Adam's condition. Flesh and blood here refers to more than just being physical. It refers to being physical in this particular body that you have right now. This particular body that you carry around that is subject to death and decay. This particular body that you have is suited for this life only. It is only between your birth and your death that this body is of any use. Your body cannot exist in God's kingdom 
in its current state. Why is that? Because God's nature is totally other. God's nature is not like our nature. God is the Creator, and we are creatures. He's the Eternal One, and He only has life. He has no death. He has no decay. He's not subject to corruption in any sense whatsoever. So when you take this body that you have right now, and you put it in His presence, what happens? Your body right now plus His presence equals death. You fall dead in the presence of God. Flesh and blood as you know it right now, this life that you have that you've inherited from Adam, it cannot exist in the presence of the Holy One, the Eternal One, the One that only has life in Himself. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Well, what's amazing about all of this is that God Himself bridges that gap that exists between our nature and His. As the eternal one, the self-existent one, the one who only has life in himself, he does something he doesn't need to do, but he does something that he wants to do, which is bridge that gap through the gospel. And we've covered earlier in this series how this gospel message isn't just for this life only. I mean, it's very appropriate to bring that up in this chapter of, of everywhere we've been in the book of 1 Corinthians. The gospel is not just for this life only. He saved you not just so you can live as someone born again, following Jesus, living for Jesus, shining the light of the gospel in the world in the here and now. That's all true. But more than that, those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. You are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and there's ultimately going to be a day for you where you will be glorified with Christ. There's ultimately going to be a day where you will shed Adam's nature, and you will put on the heavenly nature. You will shed what is mortal, and you will put on what is immortal. You will be utterly, totally, thoroughly conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, because that is God's ultimate purpose and calling a people out, saving them to Himself, glorifying them, so that through all of that, He is more glorified. Through all of that, His name is lifted up. Through all of that, we're conformed to the image of Jesus. There will be an utter restoration of life, not just spiritual, but physical. First, our souls are made new, but later, our whole being will be made new. The Corinthians had a difficult time grasping exactly what was wrong with flesh and blood. They had a difficult time really coming to the point of acceptance that their earthly bodies fell short. They didn't really understand why they had not yet arrived, and Paul is correcting that thinking. And if we consider our own experience in this life, don't you know, Christian, that your experience in this life is so much more than flesh and blood, so much more than just humans dealing with humans. That's how the majority of the world views our existence. In fact, coming from a godless evolutionary type of view, we're just bags of chemicals bumping into one another. But don't you know that your life is so much more than that? So much more especially when you think of your Christian life. 
If you want to know what it's like to just view life from a, a godless perspective, a human perspective, that we're all just people living life, bumping into one another, read the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, you could listen to your nightly news. That's one way to do it. But you could also read the book of Ecclesiastes. All is vanity. You hear that phrase over and over again in Ecclesiastes. Because without God, all is vanity. Without God, there is no hope. If this is all that there is, it's all vain. But for the Christian, we understand there is more going on in this world than just flesh and blood. I want to take you to Matthew 16, Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 through 17, where you have Jesus asking His disciples who they believe He is. Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 15, it says that Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? Is there a more important question in anyone's life than who do you say Jesus is? Oh, man. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood, there's our phrase, did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Everybody who has a Christian testimony, everyone who has a profession of Christ, everyone who has faith in the gospel, how did they get that profession? How did they get that faith? Not by flesh and blood, but the heavenly is at work in the mortal human being. The heavenly is at work in the fallen human being to bring about such a profession. Flesh and blood doesn't reveal those things, but God does. In Ephesians chapter 6, we see the nature of our battle in this life. As a Christian, you don't view this life as a battle with other human beings. How should you view it? Ephesians 6, 12. Our struggle is not against, there's our phrase, flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So not only your salvation comes back to a heavenly act, but your struggle in this life is also spiritual, isn't it? It's also doing battle with those forces in the heavenly places. This life is so much more than flesh and blood. And the Corinthians had gotten way off the rails, thinking that flesh and blood was the arrival. No way. There's more to be done. There's more to our redemption than just a spiritual salvation. We were born of imperishable seed, and we will be raised with an imperishable body. You were born of an imperishable seed, and you will be raised with an imperishable body. And right now, you're caught in between, aren't you? You're caught in between, because it has not yet appeared what we will be, First John. It has not yet appeared. And in fact, when you die, and if you're a believer, you go to the presence of God, you're still not there. You still haven't arrived. That is what we call the intermediate state. That's when your soul is separated from your body. Your body's sleeping in the grave, but you're present with the Lord in spirit. And that is still not the full glorification that God has for you. You're still caught in between. You're still in the middle of this full plan of redemption. 
that God has for His people. Life has already been given to your mortal bodies, Christians. That's a phrase from Romans 8. Life, this is eternal life, has been given to your, immo- or your mortal bodies. Isn't that a, just a crazy thing? You have a mortal body, a perishable body, a corruptible body, a dishonorable body, and you've been given life. And one of these days, this mortal will put off mortality and will put on immortality. This life will soon overcome our bodies, this life that comes from God, rendering us immortal. Turn with me just a couple pages over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. One of my favorite passages in all of the Bible is 2 Corinthians 5. And let's read the first nine verses and hear more on this very subject. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we were in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now He who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge or as a down payment. He's speaking of not just the earthly buildings, the material buildings that will one day fall down and burn, but even our earthly bodies. We know that this isn't it. We are subject to decay. We are subject to spiraling downward and going to the grave. And that's not it. There's more. We long to be clothed with our body that's from heaven. We long to be clothed with the immortal body to reflect full conformity to Jesus Christ. Verse 6, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Now, I have a long quote here from Alexander McLaren. It was so long I didn't even want to type it into the thing for the screen today, so you'll have to just listen to it. And I wish I could read it with his voice. I don't know if there are any recordings of him speaking. He lived in the 1800s, into the 1900s. But with a name like McLaren, surely he had a cooler accent than my Missouri accent. I'll read it with my Missouri accent anyway. And this is his commentary on this passage. He says, We leave the tent, we enter the building. There is nothing here of some germ of immortality being somehow extricated from the ruins and fostered into glorious growth. Or, to take another metaphor of the context, we strip off the garment and are naked. And then we are clothed with another garment and are not found naked. The resurrection of the dead is the clothing of the Spirit with the house which is from heaven. And there is as much difference between the two habitations as there is between the grim, solid architecture of the northern peoples amidst snow and ice needed to resist the blast and to keep the life within an ungenial climate, 
and the light, graceful dwellings of those who walk in an atmosphere of perpetual sunshine in the tropics. As there is between the close-knit and narrow-windowed and narrow-doored abode in which we now have to pass our days, and that large house with broad windows that take in a mightier sweep and new senses that have relation with new qualities in the world than around us. Therefore, let us, while we grope in the dark here and live in a narrow hovel in a back street, look forward to the time when we shall dwell on the sunny heights in the great pavilion which God prepares for them that love Him. That's pretty good. I wish I could write like that. We look forward to the day when we are clothed from heaven and we have a totally new experience with life, a totally different experience with life. So if you go back to 1 Corinthians 15, and again look at verse 50, here's the big statement, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. We cannot enter the kingdom of God with our inheritance from the last Adam. We must, or from the first Adam, I'm sorry. We must inherit the kingdom with a true heavenly conformity. And if you look down at verse 53, you see that this is a necessary change. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, he says in verse 53. This mortal must put on immortality. Have you noticed that much of this life that you live here and now is defined by your relation to the first Adam? So much of this life is defined by you being a great-great-great-great-great-grandchild of Adam? Well, here's the hope. The next life is completely characterized by our relationship to the last Adam. Our relationship to the first Adam melts away, and we're totally conformed to the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must take on a body like His, one that can be in the presence of God forever. Let's look at verse 51. Behold, Paul says, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. What a mystery that Paul is now revealing. Although we all must be changed, not all will be resurrected, because not all will die. Isn't that a fascinating thing? He says here in our text, not all sleep. He uses the the term sleep. Now remember, sleep is a euphemism for die. Not all will die. But for the Christian, this is all that we do. Death has no power over you, Christian. Death has no power over you. You just go to sleep until one day you're awakened and resurrected. All we do as Christians is sleep. For the Christian, it is not death to die. There's a great song, a great prayer that's recorded in history. It is not death to die. What hope we have. And without explicitly saying it in these two verses... Paul is clearly making reference to the return of Christ, isn't he? He's speaking of the time when Jesus will return. He says that this will happen in a moment. You see that in the text, verse 51, or verse 52, rather, in a moment. This is 
the Greek word that's used for moment here is where we get our word for Adam. It's talking about in the smallest fraction of time that can no longer be divided. Get down to the, the tiniest amount of time. It can't be any tinier of an amount of time. That's how quickly it's going to happen. We will be changed. He uses a metaphor here too. In the twinkling of an eye, we sometimes say in a blink. We'll be changed in a blink. It'll be that quick. And he also points to the trumpet. This will happen, it says, at the last trumpet. And I want to pause here for a few moments because trumpets are featured prominently in God's program, and it's good for us to think through this a little bit. What does it mean at the last trumpet? We get the instantaneous nature of it, but what does the trumpet have to do with that? Well, in the Old Testament, you see trumpets show up a lot. If you just did a word search for trumpet in the Old Testament, you would find all sorts of contexts in which the trumpet makes an appearance. You'll see trumpets used to announce a sacrifice in Israel. Trumpets were used, of course, as an alarm that a, a, an enemy tribe was coming, someone was coming to do battle. A trumpet was used actually to call your own troops to battle, to say that we're going to go off and take another tribe or nation. Trumpets are used in celebration. You see trumpets show up even in the Psalms as a means of praise. Andy, you played trumpet, right? Should we use it as a means of praise here today? Okay, all right. It would be biblical, though. Trumpets are used as a means of praise. And so, trumpets are used in a variety of contexts. And now when you think about why is a trumpet going to blast at this time when we're going to be changed, well, it actually has a lot of those themes coming together at once. A lot of those themes in which a trumpet was used in the past all kind of come together for different reasons. And there are multiple biblical authors that link a trumpet blast to the second coming of Jesus Christ. I want to show you one from Isaiah. This is from Isaiah 27, verses 12 and 13. In Isaiah 27, 12, it says, "...in that day the Lord will start His threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt." And you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. It will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown. And those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. The prophet here is seeing a day when the Lord will be present on the face of the earth, a trumpet will be blown and people will be gathered, not just the sons of Israel, but many people will be gathered to worship the Lord upon His return. Now, we just studied this morning in our Sunday school class the trumpets of Revelation. If you've read through Revelation, you know there are seven important trumpets that are spoken of. They signify increasing tribulation intensity leading up to the second coming of Christ. These trumpets are blown, and then there are events associated with each blast of the trumpet that increase in intensity throughout the tribulation leading up to the second coming. Now, if you're seeing this trumpet that Paul's speaking of through the lens of John's vision in Revelation, it creates a significant difficulty for those who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Because... We're supposed to be changed and taken out of the world before the first trumpet. What are we doing being changed at the last trumpet? 
I suspect many of you don't want to be around for that last trumpet, do you? (laughs) Well, I don't think Paul had Revelation in mind. Revelation, of course, was written some 30 to 40 years after this letter was written. It was prophecy, it was revelation that was given after Paul speaks of his last trumpet. Paul likely was just saying with the Old Testament prophets, there will one day be the ultimate alarm blasted for the coming of the Lord. There will be an alarm blasted out for those who are God's people, and at that time, they will be changed. There will be a sign of God's coming, a trumpet will sound, and it will be a time in which the Christians who have passed away will be resurrected, and those who are alive and remain will be changed as well. John MacArthur says this about the last trumpet, I do not think that this trumpet necessarily will be the last heavenly trumpet ever to be sounded. It will, however, be the last as far as living Christians are concerned. I thought that summed up the sentiment quite well. Paul's point here is that those who are alive at the Lord's coming are going to transition right into immortality. In a much later letter from Paul, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we see him expound on this subject. You notice he calls it a mystery here in 1 Corinthians. This is a, something that was previously hidden that's now been revealed to the people of God. This idea that the dead will be raised and then those who are alive will be translated, they will be changed, they'll be caught up in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Well, later, in a later letter to a different church, he expounds on this concept. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, it says, "...but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren." about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel, and here it is, with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The dead in Christ will rise They will be the first ones to be changed. There's a specific order to this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians and in 1 Thessalonians, the dead in Christ will rise and the rest will be changed though they live. Now, those who are dead in Christ, they have not been in what some call a soul sleep. If you think back to that 2 Corinthians 5 passage we just looked at earlier, Paul said then, to be absent from the body is to be what? present with the Lord. So those who have fallen asleep in Christ, are their souls sleeping in the grave waiting for the second coming? No. They are in the presence of the Lord. Their souls are in heaven. They've been in heaven. They're in that intermediate state awaiting the reunion with those bodies that are in the grave. When the Lord returns, the bodies will come out of the grave and the soul will be reunited with the body and the body will be changed into an immortal body. 
They will be raptured from the grave and then raptured to the sky. Those who are alive will be caught up with them. They'll be changed. And if you notice in our text today, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, I think Paul anticipated that he would be one of those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. Look at what he says. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. He doesn't say, 2,000 years later, those people won't all sleep. He says, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Because, of course, Paul didn't know the day of the Lord's return, just as you don't know the day of the Lord's return. And so we live with that expectation. We have on our announcement board out here in the lobby a bunch of different announcements, but there's that one little strip of paper from one of the kids' classes that says, Jesus may come today. And we live with that reality, don't we? We live with that hope. We live with that expectation. And if we do, 1 John says, we purify ourselves as He is pure. Paul says, we make it our aim, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. That hope that we live with has an effect on our lives here and now. But when this happens, when the bodies are all changed... Then the body is ready to inherit the kingdom reign with Christ. At that point, when the bodies are changed, the bodies are going to be free from Adam's condition. The body is going to be free from flesh and blood. The body is going to be free from all these things that we looked at last week. Look back up at verse 42 and just run your eyes over these qualities. The body will no longer be perishable. The body will no longer be dishonorable. The body will no longer be weak. The body will no longer be corruptible or natural. The body is going to be free from death. The body is going to be ready to enter into the kingdom of God. And this change is absolutely necessary. You cannot have Christian hope of eternity with God without resurrection hope of the body. They go together. Again, notice verse 53 in our text today where Paul says, this perishable must put on the imperishable. There's a necessity here, not wishful thinking. There's a necessity. We must be wrapped up in and covered by eternal life in every sense. Also, notice the certainty at verses 51 and 52. Look how many times he says will. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. You think there's certainty in Paul's mind about what's going to happen? Do you think this is necessary? Absolutely. It certainly will happen because it must happen. If you remain in a perishable condition, in flesh and blood, with Adam's condition that you've inherited, you will not live with God forever. It won't happen. It's a grave heresy, and I recognize there's a little bit of a play on words. It's a grave heresy to deny the resurrection of the believer, but maybe that'll help you remember it. Paul is correcting their thinking. We must look forward to that future day. Now, I want to close with the reverse sentiment that we find here. As we think about mortality putting on immortality, 
perishable putting on imperishable, I want you to think about the reverse for a moment. Would immortality ever put on mortality? Well, this happened, didn't it? This happened in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus went the opposite direction of the way we're going so that we could be conformed to Him. This is amazingly beautiful. Jesus was the capital I immortal who put on mortality for you and for me. And this change was necessary so that He could save us. This change was necessary so that we could be made one with God, so that we could have an existence with God, so that we could be children living in our Father's kingdom, shining as bright as the sun. I want to give you a couple of passages for this. First is Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Look again for our phrase, flesh and blood. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. How did Jesus release us from flesh and blood? By becoming flesh and blood. By sharing in flesh and blood. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, perhaps the most famous passage on this subject. Paul writes, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. You can read in there, flesh and blood, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ's taking on the human condition is our only hope to receive the heavenly condition, isn't it? The only hope you or I have in being totally restored, escaping corruption, resurrecting, is the fact that Jesus Christ, shared in flesh and blood, was found in the likeness of men. Though He has existed for all time and eternity, equal with God, He did that for us, to restore our souls and to one day totally restore our bodies, that we would be utterly conformed to Him, reigning with Him in the kingdom of God. That's the full gospel message. That's the big picture as God sees it and has revealed it to us. This is what God's doing in the world and in you and in me. Isn't that a blessing? Let's pray. Father, again, we thank You for Your amazing work, Your work of grace, Your great display of power. God, we ask that this gospel message would not just be an add-on to our lives, but that the person and work of Jesus Christ would be our life. That we would live for you as you so humbly came and lived for us in our place, doing what we couldn't do, 
taking the penalty we deserved. Not only being found in the likeness of a man, but living perfectly as a man. Dying as a man. And rising again as the one true God. The one who put on flesh and the one who displayed for us what holiness really is. We thank you that we have been declared innocent through faith in what Jesus has done. That we are once for all free from penalty, free from guilt. That we are totally set free by your love. God, we ask that if there are any here today who have not yet believed, who have not, by your grace, made the decision to live for Christ, to love Jesus, to believe what He has done is sufficient, that today you would work in that heart, that today you would bring the one who is far from you into your fold, that today you would bring about authentic faith, that you would be honored in that life, and that we would share in this joy together forever and ever. Father, you are our purpose for life. You are the one we serve. And we ask that you would give us, by your Spirit's power, great love for you and for our neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen.